welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Mador, joined by Chris Bouguet. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Oh, Rachel, I am exhausted, but I am so good. I just came back from Philadelphia. I'm so bummed. Philly's my hometown. You were in my hometown without me, talking about AAC stuff. I know. I feel like I've been to Philly like six times since I've known you, and you're never there. I know. You should have got me like five years ago when I lived there. <laughs> so let me tell you what I was doing there. This, uh, there was the ISTE conference there. The International Society for Technology and Education conference was there. And this was kind of a big year for AAC there. PRC and Saltillo had a booth there for the first time. Toby Dynavox has... Uh, I found out had been going there for like the last four years. And then I went to a bunch of sessions and some of them were on AAC, which is kind of a big thing because uh, this is like the mainstream educational technology conference. It's not specific to students with disabilities. And it was great to see this inclusion track and not just inclusion like students with dyslexia or students with autism, but specific to AAC. So two real quick stories to tell about the coming out of the conference. One was I went to this great session put on by Bridges Canada that was talking about accessible coding. You know, I've mentioned this a lot about the students using robots and, and students coding and the correlation with core vocabulary. And uh, here they were trying to build, and first they did a whole session about it where they had all these different robots and you could play with them and try and code the robots. And it wasn't really about core vocabulary so much as just students with uh, significant cognitive impairments learning to code. But then they showed showed an accessible um, controller that they're trying to put together, that they're trying to, to make. So they have a prototype now that is just a uh, web-based version. So the idea being that, you know, the way I talked about uh, coding is that the AAC user would be maybe giving someone else commands like go, turn, stop, either one to control the robot or two to control their communication partner to, to do the coding themselves, like move the blocks, put it here, put it there, put it on top. And that's how I thought it might fit together. And of course, I would love it for the AAC user to be actually doing the coding themselves, but sometimes they have comorbid conditions where they might have difficulty accessing the actual physical coding, you know, hitting, hitting the keyboard or coding in that direction. You know what I mean? And so one way you would do that is you could then, they could still do it, is they could work with a communication partner. But what these people were doing is like, no, we can build something that's accessible so that you don't have to click and drag, for instance. You could click on a right arrow and then click where you want that right arrow to go, like in a sequence, and then click on a up arrow and then click where you want that up arrow to go and then click on a play button and then click where you want the play button to go so that when someone hits the play button, it will do the first arrow and then the second arrow and it'll drive the, the robot in that direction. And so they were building, like I said, this accessible uh, controller, which was just awesome. It was just such a good uh, like, okay, someone's working on this, you know, like it's an idea that I had known. And of course there's people working on coding and robots, but here was someone working specifically on people with access issues and people who use AAC and merging it all together to make this truly inclusive experience. And it was just, it was just a great thing to have. That is amazing. And I just love to hear that's the way that education is heading, right? To be more inclusive. Um, that's the best thing about this story is that everyone is starting to think about that lens. Um, 
kind of through a like universal design perspective, which is so cool. That's the way that we should be thinking about technology, you know, because these types of things, they help everybody. Um, and especially, you know, students with disabilities, but, um, that's awesome. What's your other story? I'm so intrigued. So the other one just sort of piggybacks off on the second one, and it's how to bring different people together. So you know that we've had Jane Odom on the podcast in the past, and she has uh, she was there because she, she was there. With, she works for PRC, and uh, she was there at the at the conference. And so I ran into her, and her and I had actually uh, have been having conversations about doing sessions about coding at, at different conferences coming up. You know, we put in proposals together. So we were talking about this, and I was like, I was telling her the what I just told you, and what I was just sharing with everybody. Here on the podcast, and she's like, "Well, I got to meet these people." Like she had not met the people from Bridges Canada, and I said, "Well, I don't really know them either. I was just in their session, but well, come on over." So there was a space there called the Inclusive Learning Playground uh, that I got to man one of the tables with a couple other people, and uh, the Bridges Canada people had a table. So I brought Jane over and introduced them, and then she was working with the the actual developer. She was talking to him. Uh, one of the brilliant things about a conference, uh, really any conferences, is, is not necessarily the content that you learn, but the connections that you make with other people. Put the two right people in the right room together, and and I can just see the, the sparks flying. Like The developer was like, well, you know people that need to use something like this, and I'm trying to develop something like this, and I'm not sure the way I'm developing it. I need, I need authentic feedback, and you know people who could give me authentic feedback, and they just started riffing off each other, and it was just a great thing to see. And I just, I mean, it's kind of a heartwarming story just to say that, that these conferences really are, are a great way to bring people together. Yeah. And we've kind of said this before on the podcast, I think it was Carol Zangari's episode, but it's really important to go up to those presenters afterwards. If you feel, you know, inspired by something that they said, just going up and introducing yourself. Um, I know I can probably speak for both you and I, Chris, you know, I love having people come up afterwards and ask questions and tell me stories. And it's just like, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, walk up to somebody who presented at a conference and introduce yourself. And, um, you never know what kind of opportunities may spark from the right connection with the right person. Um, the best thing that we can do as professionals is try to make as many connections with people as possible, especially outside of our domain, right? I think that's one of the brilliant things is being able to connect with an app developer who maybe doesn't know a lot about children with disabilities or AAC and being able to bring our expertise into what they're doing. Um, so if we can all kind of collaborate in those ways, it just makes things um, really exciting. Absolutely. Now you have a story to share too, don't you? Yes. And actually leads right in to kind of what we were talking about. So last night I was so excited. I was invited to an event. Um, Jason Lembeck, who was on our podcast, he has created an app called Special X. And I was so honored to be invited to this dinner that he hosted last night. Um, I sat around a table with some of the biggest names in LA as far as practitioners. There were developmental pediatricians. Um, there were other speech language pathologists, just tons of professionals, all working with children with disabilities. And the event was amazing. It was really inspiring. We all kind of went around the table and we talked about, you know, of course who we are, but also why we do what we do. I think we so often focus on what we do and how we do it, but the most important thing is why do we do what we do? 
right? And that's what the that's what is the most engaging, right? And to hear why people got into the field that they're doing, how their career has followed a certain trajectory and it's been influenced by certain things. It's just so cool to listen to. And then of course we talked about technology. So we did this thing that was called roast, uh, roast or toast. And so we were talking about technology and you could either say, do a roast, which was like something that was like a gripe of yours about technology. Um, and just share a story where you were annoyed with technology or you think technology is bad. And then, um, you could also choose to do a toast, um, a toast to technology. So I was, of course, waiting for my turn and I was kind of going back and forth. I'm like, I have some roasts, I have some toasts. Like, what am I going to do? I realized that I'm more of a, a toaster versus a roaster. Um, and so, of course, I shared a, a really impactful story about AAC and how, you know, that technology really allows our children the capacity to connect with the world when otherwise they would have no outlet. So, of course, I, I ended up just sticking with toasting. Um, but it was such a cool, cool event because we all, came from different backgrounds and we all left really inspired, really collaborative, all talking about, Oh, you know, I have this client that I can refer to you. And I, I would love to sit in on, you know, this social skills class that you're running. Um, so it was just really cool. Um, and I'm just really honored that I was invited. That sounds like an amazing, amazing event. Like you said, it's, it's, it is about networking and sharing resources together and sharing ideas and, and, and really getting out of just working with speech language pathologists, like you said, getting to other professions, because that's where you can get even more fresh ideas. Yeah. And anytime, you know, you have the opportunity to work alongside a professional that's not within your domain. So being able to co-treat with an occupational therapist or being able to do an overlap session with an ABA uh, instructor, um, anything like that is so valuable to our practice because we can pick strategies up that we wouldn't otherwise know or have been taught in our field. And it really makes your approach more holistic. Um, and if we can start supporting other domains during our sessions, think about how much progress can be made. Um, the same way we want our communication strategies to be followed through, you know, in all, all the other practitioners sessions, um, same thing goes for what everybody's working on. We can all kind of bring our genius to the table and share those strategies and we can all work together. And, um, that's when you see the most progress. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, and as part of it, it's really rewarding to be able to work with all those different people and then share, like you said, share a little bit of your knowledge as well, like the competencies that we're going to be talking about later on in this episode. Yes, I have a story about operational competency. Um, so I've been working with a student with AAC for about two years now. And from the very beginning, this is a, he's now 10. Um, this is a 10 year old. He does have some words, but they're really hard to understand. He also has autism. And we have been working on for a very long time, some of his operational competencies when it comes to his device. Um, so when I say operational competence, I mean, um, actually knowing how to use that piece of technology in front of you. So being able to turn the volume up when needed, being able to, you know, navigate to the correct speech generating app on your device, um, being able to plug the device in, all these are what are considered operational competencies. And I really encourage clinicians uh, to start teaching these right away. Um, there's no reason that when a device dies that we should just grab it and go plug it in for a student. That's a teaching opportunity. And so I feel really passionate about this and have been working with a student on these types of operational competencies for a while. And the other day we came in and his device died in the middle of our session. 
And it was such a great moment because I just waited because we've been working on looking at the device, knowing when the battery is going to die. I have a really great um, resource that I sell on my website um, that has lots of different visual supports to help teach these these skills to students. Um, and one of which is um, it shows the battery and it's like, you know, in the green, the battery is at 100%. You know, when it's in the middle, it's kind of, you know, you're running low. When it's like, you know, at the bottom, it's red. It's, you know, you need to go plug it in. And so we've been using that resource and, you know, during the session, when it's on the red zone, like it's going to die soon, we will plug in the device. And anyway, the device ended up dying as soon as we kind of pulled it out of his backpack. And I just waited because he looked at me like, uh, like now what? And I feel like that space is so important because he had to problem solve, right? He had to think, okay, this just turned off. Now what do I do? Um, and so I just waited. I ended up waiting for what felt like an eternity. Um, it was probably only 30 seconds, but it was so cool because he picked the device up and he took it over. And I have in my office, I have a, a iPhone charger that's constantly plugged in and he took it over and he plugged the device in on his own. And I was so excited because we've been working on this for about a year now. I'm just plugging it in, looking at the battery. Um, and so the fact that he did that on his own was just super exciting to me. Go him and go you. That's amazing. If you guys are interested in earning continuing ed credits for this podcast, this is part two of a two-part episode all about operational AAC competencies. And you can go to the following link, bit.ly backslash tech CEU. Click on the operational AAC skills and you will be taken to Exceptional Ed's website where you can purchase the course and do a 10-question quiz and earn CEUs. Just take the test, get your credit, and voila, you're done. And if you guys haven't joined our Facebook group already, just search Talking With Tech uh, and join the conversation. It's where we release all of our new episodes and lots of people in the group ask questions. So um, be sure to join the group if you haven't already. So without further ado, let's listen to part two of the Golden Rules of AAC Competency. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Measuring competence, this is... Uh... Everything's getting a little tricky. We'll say that usually uh, you think of measuring a competency as like measuring anything else, you know, that there's a series of actions you take. Well, you know, so often when we think about measuring and uh, we think of it as the numbers, right? Some sort of qualitative measurement. Right. Um, and uh, of course, numbers can be spun in any different way, you know? So you start with a goal and then you measure towards that goal. But I often think of, and I, this is kind of the point down a couple of bullet points down, is that maybe we put too much stress on ourselves to be just collecting the data. And when I say data, again, I think that that means numbers. And what if we thought of it more of collecting evidence? Evidence that progress is being made, you know? And then 
and, and especially because the progress can be so slow in these different competency areas, right? And let me give you a perfect example here. I was just talking to a teacher today. She was a preschool teacher that was um, just filling in for a half hour so the teacher in the autism program could run down and get a 30-minute break, you know, and actually eat her lunch, right? And she had her, the student that was in preschool last year is now in this uh, autism program uh, a year later. So two different teachers, right? And I went to the preschool teacher that had the student before, and I said, did you show the new teacher your videos? And she's like, no, Chris, I didn't even think of doing that. I was like, you got to show the videos because they were modeling for this kid at the beginning of this school year, you know, uh, two years ago. And it took, she said, from September to December of constant modeling, the student was barely even like attending to the device, not really even joint attention sometimes, but they just kept modeling. I don't know if you can see my face, but I'm kind of looking around, like not really looking at the device, but they just kept modeling as if he was there, uh, if he was attending, because they, they decided inside themselves that, you know what, we don't know that he's not attending. We just know that he's not directly looking at the device. So they just kept modeling. And they took a video of him doing that. And then they took a video of him in December when he started using one word utterances. And they took another video in May to show his growth and how he started putting two words together. But it took from September to December of constant modeling all the time, and they weren't doing it as much as they could have even, right, for them to make that progress. And bringing that back to measuring the competence, the data would show that this kid isn't making progress. Maybe we need to change the device. Maybe we need to come up with different interventions. And they said, no, we're going to keep collecting evidence to making these videos so that we can then use that evidence to make the case that he is making progress, if that makes sense. Uh, I think of it as evidence collection more than data collection or those two coming together. And I love that, Chris, because I feel like, you know, think about the times when you're taking data. It's like, oh, I got to get this data. I got to like do some baseline testing and you just like run in and, you know, whip something out. And it's just not a true reflection of what's happening. You know, think about when you take your, your camera out to take a video of a student. It's because they're you're you know doing amazing things, and you want to capture that. Um, and so I think it's it's a great idea to like you said collect evidence um, because it's 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 a collection over time instead of one random snapshot that may or may not reflect what a student is capable of. Right. Right. Yeah, we call that diachronic data, right? Like looking over time. And that, which is great, and that's well and good. The issue that I've seen in schools with that is that you will have maybe one SLP that collects all this wonderful evidence that is sort of subjective, right? And then is replaced the following year by somebody else who maybe has a different set of criterion. When I say these things, by the way, I'm deliberately being the devil's advocate in terms of making us think about these things. I think that everything that we're describing actually is is great and it's wonderful clinical behavior. Before, I, I'm not in the, the field, quote unquote, anymore. Right now I'm in industry. <laughs> I need my monocle. To say, <laughs> so I'm working in development. But as a private practice owner for many years, what I did is we had video cameras in the room for intervention that streamed out to an iPad uh, to the parents in the waiting room, which was partially my way of letting the parents still see what I'm doing without always being necessarily a distraction to the student, you know, in the, in the, in the moment. But it also allowed me to build this big corpus of, um, of video evidence that then I could review afterwards, right? So I'm not sitting there making my little check marks. I'm watching it afterwards and collecting my data that way. 
which was enormously useful, but also kind of torture because then you get to see everything you did wrong in the moment every single day. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I, I, I like rich, thick information, right? Like having, having that data is much more meaningful to me than seeing someone's tally list of discrete trials after you. you Lucas, you brought up a good problem uh, about how their speech therapist moved to a different speech therapist or the kid moves to a different speech therapist and now they have different data sheets and they're, they're doing it differently. On our podcast, Talking With Tech, we had Andrea Gardner and two clinicians from um, Australia. And what they basically what they said, just to get to it, is that they said, you know, what we do is every year we have our teams use the same tool over and over and over again. They use um, the, the Tracy Kovach uh, AAC profile. Right. And so they just have the teams and because you're using the same tool at least once a year, maybe your data collection sheets are different, but the team, the IEP team altogether is working on uh, that same system uh, of collection uh, reflection uh, at least once a year. And speaking of another episode, uh, Jill Center and Matt Bob came on to our podcast and, and that was the, a, a big takeaway for me was that reflection piece. Um, and, you know, of course they work with communication partners, but it's really, I think it's such a great idea to, they talk about a pretest and a post-test and then reflection, I think is the biggest part, right? Is being able to kind of digest what you just watched and they talk about in the context of videos. Um, and then being able to reflect like, oh, wow, like, you know, look at all the progress that I've made over the last year. Because I think so often when we're in the day-to-day of everything, we kind of, it's hard for us to step out of it and see, like, look how far we've come. And I can say that for, you know, communication partners, for teachers, for myself, um, and also just for our students. Yeah. It's actually, it's, it's funny that we all went this direction talking about data collection because I see in the chat here, that's what everyone is sort of talking about right now. So there's clearly a need for it. I mean, I love the idea of having the unified uh, data collection tools across multiple you know, SLPs or communication partners or whatever that might be. A lot of folks are asking for links or ideas on data collection that's not um, both for SLPs and then somebody here for not that's not SLP uh, centric. We can see if we can send out some stuff. Uh, obviously, also folks feel free to, to post into the chat anything that you already use. It, there, we do have a few resource links that we're going to share here in a minute, one of which is, um, you know, an assessment that is explicitly oriented around this, which is the Dident excuse me, the dynamic AAC goals grid, um, which was developed actually in part by Vicki Clark, who's speaking tomorrow in this conference. So that's timely. But I mean, this is sort of the question, right, is, is assessment and data collection. Can I throw out one other strategy here? And I'm just curious if anyone's doing this. Since we mentioned videos and collecting evidence, not just data, one thing that maybe the technology can help us with is taking those the, that evidence and putting it in a shared location that follows a student from the from preschool to yes, the, until they graduate, right? Uh, I mean, I, a lot of schools are using now um, Google Drive, for instance, and so you could have this ongoing portfolio where you could put all of this information and it doesn't get lost, you know? When they get, when that kid that I was talking about earlier gets to middle school, if things have not gone well based on the, I hope it doesn't happen to this student, but imagine, right, um, the, the middle school teacher going, they, that kid could never put two two words together, right? We can't even imagine it. We were like, let's go back and watch the preschool videos where he absolutely was putting two words together. Something happened here that uh, the system's not working right. But just some place to put everything, a collective bucket to put it all in. 
You know what I've done, Chris, is I've set up Vimeo channels. So with the family, of course, uh, but you can make a, a private Vimeo channel where you need a password to kind of get into the channel. So it's not like broadcasting all over the internet, uh, but it's a great way to track progress over time. And I just feel like we're such visual creatures, right? And it, seeing something in a video, it might take, you know, 10 pages in a report and it, it takes 10 seconds in a video. Um, so I just think it's a really effective strategy to use, assuming you have the right permissions, to kind of track progress over time. That yeah. on you know what else? Let's take it one step further now. This is a little bit off, but could you imagine doing that if you were measuring the competencies for the communication partners? Right. Oh, so yeah. it's, it's like we do all this training and then uh, and it has to again, Jill Center and Matt Baugh, they really hit the nail on the head in that last episode talking about how it has to be ongoing coaching, not just training. Right. And the, you follow a model, an eight step model to uh, to help that. But how do we measure where the communication partners started and where they finished through this whole coaching model? Right. Which maybe brings us to, you know, another question, which is. Is there a difference between user competencies? We've been specifically talking about the user and the communication partner competencies. What, what do you think? Well, you know what's funny is that initially we were like, well, no, there's not. Um, but then we thought about it for a little. We let it simmer. And we're like, well, yes, there actually are. Um, and I think it's just funny because I think we both kind of off the cuff we're like well no they're the same not really kind of thinking through it and i think it's really important you know obviously i think the communication partners have to understand the competencies and um you know they have to be able to operate the device and they have to understand the kind of linguistic competencies and all these things but uh, the other thing that's really important is just really learning how to manipulate activities and environments to create communication opportunities. Um, and that's, I think, the biggest difference for me is that we need to train our communication partners in how to facilitate language um, and how to create opportunities. Because otherwise, you know, we're kind of either stuck just doing requesting or, um, you know, I think that that's where it's really important for us to train caregivers on, you know, withholding things or sabotaging routines and all these things we kind of take for granted knowing as speech language pathologists. Um, we have to make sure that we teach our communication partners that too. Right. Well, and, and, we, and we have an enormous body of evidence that shows that like very possibly the biggest predictor of successful adoption of AAC is training of, you know, the caregivers and the parents and the, the whole circle of support. You know, I have to give a little shout out there. Was, I just saw Carol comment. So please go to Practical AAC, obviously. I mean, that's, uh, you know, an enormous body of, of, of uh, you know, resources there. But I mean, it's an interesting question, right? Because there's, to me, it's almost like, well, do they, does the communication partner have to know everything and more, right, than, than the communicator? Probably not, but there definitely is a, a distinct set of competencies that will enable them to be as effective as they can be. And um, we were joking as we were preparing for this talk that we should, this would be an interesting exercise to come up with that list. We can call it the talking with tech competency partner communication portfolio. I have no idea. <laughs> I love it. Let's do it. Let's make it. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I first heard this question, I didn't think of it as communication partner. I thought of it as a person who doesn't use a communication device. Like the question is, is there a difference between someone who uses a communication device? Me, you know, do I have those same competencies? You know, like I need to know strategies for how to communicate with my children and my wife and my coworkers, you know, and I, I need to have, I have operational competency of my articulators, you know, but then I realized, no, the question is, the people that are working with communication device users, 
I think about it this way, like it's so different than if that communication partner is working with an adult or with a child, right? Like if I'm working with a child, I might have to have more operational competency because I might be the one that is uh, originally maybe learning how to program where the the, uh, new vocabulary goes, or I might have to know what guided access is, you know what I mean? But when I'm an adult, maybe, you know, uh, and I'm I'm a communication partner with an adult, well, maybe I don't need to know how to access Facebook and Twitter because maybe the person already knows how to access Facebook and Twitter. Maybe they're already doing that, you know? So uh, I do think that the the skills are different, not just um, between a user and a communication partner, but based on the, the skills that the user already has, if that makes sense. Right. Perfect. This should have been a two hour presentation, not realizing. <laughs> I guess we have to carry on. We already have a few questions in the Q&A and we have a few more slides here. So um, let's keep talking. W- one thing we did want to touch on was, I guess, the distinction between adult and pediatric AAC use, right? And what the you know disparity in the competence there is. We've mostly been talking, I think, about kids so far. Um, but there, there is, um, I mean, it is different, right? Does anybody want to chime in? Yeah, I'm actually interested in posing to the group what you guys think are some essential differences between working with pediatrics and working with adults. You know, as they post their answer there, I would, I also, I would like to think of it again as that spider chart, and I want the, uh, everybody to grow as much as they can in all the different directions and all the competencies over the years, right? And I don't know that there's necessarily a magic moment when, okay, you've turned 18 and now you're an adult, and so suddenly I have to look at different competencies. Like, I think that's something we have to start to embed in um, just in children, let alone communication users, from the very beginning. So let me, let me explain. Like, with my own kids and with the, the kids that I know in, in schools, we start posing the question like, I don't know, should, should you post this on a blog? Should you, would you post this to Facebook? Would you post this on Instagram? You start posing these questions to kids when they're in second grade, you know? Would you mind if I took a picture of this? Why so early? So they grow up knowing those skills and knowing what should be posted and what shouldn't. This is an example of something that I would share and this is something, an example of I wouldn't. And I'm particularly looking at that that blogging word right there on our, on our on our slide, you know, potential essential skill differences, blogging. Well, we don't want to build that skill once you're an adult. We build that from the very beginning, you know, just like those operational competencies right from the very beginning. It's like, here, dude, this is your charger. This is where you plug it in. You know, here's your strap. Here's how you hold it. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, a really practical strategy that I think is really important to start early on is think alouds. So I'm constantly thinking out loud with my with my students, and you know instead of just grabbing the device and plugging it in, it's like, oh look, pointing to you know the little icon that is flashing red, like about to die, saying, oh, it looks like the iPad is, is about to die. Like, we need to find the charger. Let's go get the charger. You know, now we need to plug it in. Um, I think just making, giving context for why we're doing the things that we're doing is a really easy way that you can start with literally any student. Um, I think that you can talk about the things that you're doing. Um, I also see in, in the group adding vocabulary, and that is a strategy that I love using with kids. Um, you know, if there's not a, a word in their system, 
they're involved in the, the, the entire process as I'm going through it. It's like, oh, we don't have unicorn in here. Well, let's add a button. And I'm kind of talking about it as we're going. I let them choose what picture they want. Um, I was just doing it today, um, you know, and it, it didn't really, it didn't really match up, but I was like, you know what, this is your device. And if you want that photo, like bring it on. Um, you know, I think that also gives kids autonomy. Um, this is their voice and they have a say in how it's set up and what pictures or icons that we use. Um, so I just love that Kim added that to, to the group chat because adding vocabulary is something that we should involve our students in. It's funny, the narrating of your sort of life experiences is something that I'm so used to doing that like it's become a joke in my family that I'll be with my wife and I'm like, let's go to the kitchen and see if we have more string cheese. <laughs> yum, yum. Um, you know, this, one thing this always makes me think of also is the, the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning and Disability, right? The WHO ICF framework, which was all about access to activities of daily living, right? And these sorts of things that we want to afford to all of our students over time. And um, it goes back to what, what you were saying, Chris, of um, we, we don't want to teach blogging when you're 19, right? And we don't want to teach Instagram when you're 21. Like these things should be, we should be affording that access all through the lifespan, you know? And it's it's interesting because there is obviously a hierarchy of needs in terms of the, the skills that need to be acquired. But, um, you know, you think about what a typically developing child is able to do. I think about this all the time, right? Like I work with a lot of, of students with Rett syndrome. And how often does a 17-year-old girl with Rett get to slam the door on her parents and say she's not going to clean her room, right? And so what we see instead is we see behaviors in the form of refusal or whatever else. And then it becomes this whole issue and we're writing a behavior plan. And like, no, this is totally developmentally appropriate. We need to, I think, probably get started on some questions here. We have nine minutes left. Maybe we have a few slides here. Oh, yes, resources. So we have the link here. I think I saw uh, Carol shared it also for the DAG that I mentioned earlier. Of course, also the Talking With Tech podcast. If you are not yet tired of hearing us talk, um, there's 40-plus hours of that, so enjoy. Um, and then also the Continuum of Language Expression, we have their links. So the, the Continuum of Language Expression, probably no one's ever heard of because we made it up um, a few years ago. This is specific to the linguistic domain, uh, the linguistic competency. But the idea was that we felt like that we, there was all these different tools to measure language and none of our teachers were really using them. Only speech therapists knew about them and we wanted our teachers to know more about them. We also felt like we wanted to quantify it in some way. So myself, two other speech therapists and a preschool teacher got together. We looked at all of these different tools, the communication matrix, a bunch of books on language development, and we tried to make our own uh, skill list of what the earliest from like age zero to two would look like pre-Browns, right? Grammatical morphemes. Um, what would the, those skills look like? And we tried to make it like a, a survey that you could, as an IEP team, you could go through, which that, that link, if you clicked on it, would be a uh, to a Google Sheet. And you could fill it out and say like, okay, here's, can the kid make one word utterances? And then you rate it as either a nope, never heard it. Uh, a one is like sometimes and a two is, yeah, they do it all the time. And by the end of filling that out together, one, you would have gone through the process of thinking about language together as a team, especially early language development. Element. And then you would also have some sort of score that you could then, you know, at the end of the school year, kind of go through that same process again, and you'd see how many points you've jumped up, if you will, you know, has the kid, have you helped the kid move up these, the scale at all. So that's what that tool is. Check it out. I am excited. I didn't know that you'd built that. That's amazing. See, we still learn about each other every day. <laughs> 
please go ahead and start um, typing uh, in some questions. I do want to, we have a few in the Q&A that I'll read out if that's all right with you folks. Are you ready? Yeah, please. Um, so th this is, I think, a really important question um, that is, is relevant to this. This is from Marilyn. Why do we need to wait until our kids can show that they can press on yes or no or other buttons in order for uh, an AAC device to be provided? Um, how can they be able to learn to use the device if we don't expose them? My daughter, 18, um, has Kaiser. They will not fund a device until she's able to show a yes, no, and cause and effect. Um, so Chris and I are both shaking our heads. I know, right? <laughs> I just, <laughs> sorry, Marilyn. That's, we just don't agree with that, that idea. You know? we, just, we just don't. We know there are no prerequisites to AAC. This is a, a, we're busting myths. I feel like all day long, I just bust myths. Um, and this is one of them. You know, we don't need a yes, no response and all of these things. I just, I, I come into that a lot. Um, I'm in private practice and a lot of families come to me because same thing at school. Oh, well, they didn't get to a certain level of PECs or, you know, they don't have a yes, no response or, you know, what have you fill in the blank. Um, and I'm just like, listen, we're going to get started and we're not going to let that stop us from getting started with AAC. And I mean, it's just, it, it just goes back to presuming competence too. And just knowing that through continuous modeling and teaching, that is how a child learns those things. It's through the process. We don't need to get there. It makes no sense to have to get there before we start teaching. Yeah, it's, it's well, right, it's bizarre. I mean, the state-by-state state standards and the insurance company-by-insurance company standards are widely variable, right, um, across different geographies. And, and really, we're only talking about the U.S., right? I mean, if we go outside the U.S., it's, it, it, you know, can be, can be great or can be horrible. But in this question, I, Marilyn, you specifically referenced um, Toby Igaze, so I will for a moment put on my Toby hat and say I'll put my email address in the chat and we will take care of you. We'll find a way to, um, to get this set up for you. Um, Marilyn, I think something else to, to say that's kind of uh, important is to understand that, especially since the title of this is in, in the new era of communication, like once upon a time, and maybe with eye gaze, it's, it's still this way, but um, to get a robust communication system was thousands of dollars. So people really felt like there needed to be this uh, justification of, of, of why you need to spend that much money, right? Um, but now robust language systems don't cost thousands of dollars. You can get robust language systems for under $1,000, under $800, you know? And so in not every case, but in many cases, this this has changed the game, but the, the system for providing funding and for assessing and for, and for maybe even implementation have not changed yet, you know? And so that's one of the reasons we're doing these these webinars and uh, and having this, and Mei Ling has put together this whole uh, AAC after work, and this is why we do the podcast, is to start to change that paradigm, you know? Yeah, um, just to switch to the next question I see here. Um, I have a I'm a teacher, so I see the kids all day, every day. How do I find the balance between giving students errorless opportunities to participate and express themselves and helping them to find a way to show us what they know and understand? First thing that comes to my head is the prompting hierarchy. <laughs> um, you know, because I think that it, it is a balance. We need to do constant modeling and showing and teaching, but sometimes we need to kind of pause and use that expectant pause and just wait and see what happens. Um, it, but it's it's a balance, and it's there's no unfortunately there's no like cut and dry answer. Um, but it's really important to make sure we're sprinkling in moments where we're just kind of setting up an opportunity and and waiting and seeing what happens. What Rachel said. 
<laughs> I put a link to a least to most prompting uh, hierarchy chart that we often put uh, up in the room. You know, we ask teachers to print this and then kind of put it up uh, somewhere that they can see so that everyone in the room can kind of start to learn what those prompts might look like, you know, and how you start from least and go to most. You know, one thing I guess I want to comment on that too, this is a little bit disparate, but we had um, one of the people that came on our podcast was Ava Sweeney who's a woman with CP who is the weed consultant for Speechless, right? The, so it's, if you've watched the show Speechless, it's basically the, her AAC system that they use and these other things. And it was a really interesting interview. But one thing that she said in there that I, has really resonated with me is that we need to recognize the time that um, communication partners need for themselves, right? And I've thought about that a little bit in the academic context too, that if you've, you, realistically, you can't, be on every moment of every day as a teacher with 30 kids in your classroom. And you need to kind of forgive yourself for that, right? Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of things. I, I, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure where I'm going from there, except for that I've been in that situation. I've gone home just sad every single night. And um, you can do your best and it's never gonna be perfect. But you provide those opportunities where you can get them and then you teach and train everyone around you to also be effective communication partners and collect data. And that's really the only way we can, you know, sort of build confidence. And the other thing that you just reminded me of, Lucas, is that I work with a lot of parents, a lot of moms, actually, who have, like, severe mom guilt that they're not modeling enough, they're not doing enough. Um, and, you know, it's, I say the exact same thing, like, we're not always on. We're not always communicating. Right. We need downtime as human beings. Um, so this expectation that we need to be talking all day and modeling all day like yes like do we do we want to err on the side of modeling more than less absolutely but we need to be kind to ourselves and to to make sure that we're supporting you know these moms and these teachers that feel like they're not doing enough um you know because it's not realistic this expectation that you know every second of every day we need to be doing we need to be communicating with one another like that's not realistic I'll right. throw one more in too, and I'll say uh, we just uh, just today I interviewed Lindsay Payden Cargill, who is a uh, um, she well she just works in AAC. I'll say that for now. And I asked her what she would say, and it's just a, just a good reminder. Like, what could she say to if she could say to every speech therapist or every teacher out there who's working with AAC, what would you say? And she said, "Be the fun," you know. Just yeah. remember that, that, that your intervention and the, when kids come to school, it's not about drill and kill. It's about en enjoying the moment and, and, and having the shared experience with people. That's what communication is about. And so right. have fun with the kids, you know, and if you have fun, then the rest of the learning should take care of itself. Right. Yeah. And if you don't talk about what they're going to talk about on the playground, then it's not going to generalize. Right. Yeah. Plus that way you get to talk about Pokemon all day, which is like my favorite thing. So. <laughs> and Dungeons um, and Dragons. <laughs> Okay, so we have these resources, and I will let everyone know that if you do want to get a course certificate, please make sure that you take the quiz. Um, I also want to invite you to join the conversation on the Facebook group, Talking With Tech. And so you can post questions there, and all Chris, Rachel, and Luke all have access to that. And so that's a great way to have kind of the, this conversation to go on, and then you can uh, refer back to it or share it. So you can find them there and then you can listen to the podcast either at Exceptional Ed, you can find them or on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you so much for joining us and we are going to end the session now. Everybody say goodnight. Bye. <laughs> Goodbye.
You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.